0: Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Uh, We're glad that you're here with us this morning if you're visiting. Uh, And uh, we are continuing a series in the study of uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Last week, uh, we, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we introduced or were introduced to the disciples. Uh, They're calling the first four disciples, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as they were fishing by the sea uh, of Galilee, and we're remaining in that area, but in very marked fashion, we are jumping ahead. We're just kind of cruising. We've called the disciples, and now we're rushing into ministry. And the next scene that we have here is in the synagogue in Capernaum. So they go to the town of Capernaum, and they are the ministry. Or Jesus is speaking at this synagogue. So with that, let's turn to the, the text. You can find it in your bulletin, um, and or you can look in your Bibles. Uh, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 21 uh, to 39. 21 to 39. So hear God's Word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother in law lay ill with a fever, and immediately They told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. in casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we need uh, you. We need Christ to come, the one who has all authority. Uh, and uh, Lord, we need you to come by your Spirit here today uh, and in, enlarge our hearts, uh, grow us in our affection and love of Jesus, and draw us to yourself in faith. Uh, help us to see clearly. The compassion and power and authority of Jesus in our text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I'm sure you noticed Mark in his uh, excited way. He says immediately, I don't know how many times there, but he keeps wanting to show us Jesus. That's what he wants. He desires to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Says it over and over again. And this is what happened next. Like a child retelling a story. You know how that goes, right? Immediately. And next. And then. And, and wait, you haven't heard the best of it. Here it comes. So Mark is doing that uh, throughout this, this text. He doesn't give us many details, but he shows us Jesus. Um, so I want us to think about a few things as we look at this text. First is, the first thing I want us to think about is, what is Authority. Now, maybe it's obvious, right? We kind of know authority when we see it. But it's kind of interesting to contemplate it for a minute. What, what constitutes authority? Authority relates to power and knowledge and experience and, and, and designation. That is, authority is something that is granted or uh, conferred or, or legitimized. And we see this, these things in all sorts uh, of authorities and all sorts of settings, Someone can be said to have authority in areas simply by virtue of what they know or what they've experienced. So uh, we go to a car expert or authority when our car is broken. We don't go to to the guy who doesn't have much knowledge or experience, uh, uh, or we try not to, but we go to the one who is the authority. That's an informal authority, if you will. More common is the kind of authority that is conferred or relates to a position, so you know, parents, authority over their children. Teachers, authority in the classroom. Um, so a teacher, for example, uh, has both authority based on what has been designated to the person and by virtue of what they know. So it's kind of both of those things. There's different ways we think about authority. But there's other ones that are obvious, right? Government. Um, elders in a church that have been granted authority have specific areas of expertise. Um, and I think one of the more interesting ones is the authority in, within the structure of kids' play. I don't know if you ever noticed that, right? You get a group of kids in a, in a game, a sport maybe, and you just leave them to their devices. And soon, somebody kind of rises to the top. Why? Well, maybe they have experience and they have knowledge of the sport and they have a sense of charisma. Or maybe it's just... Sheer power and force. They just exert themselves. But kids get in line. Surprise. The captains make the teams. Um, and maybe there's some rub, but you get what I'm saying. But finally, maybe most significantly, there is a kind of authority that is secured by power. Right? Governments operate with this kind of authority. They have the power of the sword to enforce the laws of the land. Without such, authority, without such power, there would be constant challenges to that authority. They wouldn't be able to exercise their authority. So in many ways, the power attends to the authority uh, and the right to govern. Well, in our text this morning, uh, we are introduced to the authority above all authorities. The king above all kings, right? Uh, the one who has all power, all knowledge, and whose authority has been granted to him by his heavenly Father. But there's something else that this king, this authority figure has. Not just power, not just knowledge and experience, not just charisma, but this king, not just Power and authority that's been designated to him by the Father. But this king has compassion. His great compassion and love. And that's what we want to dwell on this this morning. We want to look at this compassionate, powerful king. Uh, And we just want to engage with who he is. Um, So we'll look at this in three parts. First, the compassionate, powerful king speaks with authority second the compassionate powerful king heals with tenderness and care and finally the compassionate powerful king declares good news so first the compassionate powerful king teaches with authority uh, again, in typical Markan style, our text begins immediately, right after the call of those disciples. Immediately they go into Capernaum and enter the synagogue. And we aren't given many details about these first uh, moments with the disciples. Did they get to hang out together for a little bit and get to know each other? Or did they walk from their fishing boats to Capernaum into the synagogue and witness? We, we aren't given those details. No transition, no training period, nothing. We are transferred immediately into the synagogue. And here we are told simply that he came in and he taught. That's it. That's how it begins. Look at the text. It says, Jesus went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, this is a really curious thing. Um, for me, right? Uh, this is uh, uh, not something I feel a lot of comfort in, actually, to this concept here. Um, uh, the idea of one who is not necessarily trained under you know, certain authorities and certain figures and hasn't been vetted properly and hasn't been approved, the idea of somebody coming through those doors and handing this mic to them is fear-inducing for me. What are they going to say? What if they teach something that's false? What if they offend somebody here? What if they turn out to have lives that don't conform to the gospel and bring scandal into our midst? What if they lead people astray? What if they simply have no ability to talk and they just kind of ramble on and on and on? What if they have no knowledge of God's word? See, as elders uh, and as a minister, those who've been granted some form of authority are called to guard the preaching and teaching of the word. And so this kind of freedom in a service, to me, seems very dangerous. Now, I recognize fully that there are traditions with a little more flexibility, right? Um, the, The Quakers, for instance... when they have Quaker meetings, and I've never been to one, so if you have, you can correct me after the service, that's fine, but I think the way it goes is, they they might have some designated people who have some sense of authority, but generally speaking, they gather together, at least at some point in the service, and they sit in silence and wait for the Spirit to move somebody, and then that person stands up and talks, regardless of anything. Somebody can correct me later, but that's how I understand it. Now, the synagogue wasn't a Quaker meeting, right? Um, there were elders, authorities, that, who oversaw the synagogue and its service. And there was a tradition of inviting prominent, learned guests to come and to read from the law and to give interpretation of the text. And we see this later in the book of Acts. We see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. Paul would often go, right, into the various synagogues. That's how he would start his ministry in a various area. He would go into the synagogue, and as a teacher of the law, they would invite him to come and to read the text and to share his thoughts. Jesus, similarly, through as the ministry of Jesus goes on, he would go into the synagogues. But part of what would happen in that is that as the text was expounded, then the, the people in the synagogue, particularly the leaders of the synagogue, would question The man who just spoke. So it was more, how how do you say, it was more of an opportunity for them to share and then be challenged. Um, And now at this point in our text, Jesus hasn't done much, but I think he has garnered a reputation uh, throughout the town. Um, Mark, we have very little detail, but in the other Gospels, it seems that he's already been teaching and healing throughout the vicinity of Galilee. We even get a sense of this early in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, verse 14, where it says says Jesus went and proclaimed the Gospel of God, calling people to repent and believe. And that's chapter 1, verse 14. So when Jesus entered the synagogue here in Capernaum, There was likely an intense curiosity about this man who was a new teacher, prophet, person who performed miracles in their midst. And they wanted to know what he had to say. And they were ready to respond, to question, to ask him. So when you said X, what did you mean? Um, As somebody who had to be uh, questioned in front of a large group of men um, at a presbytery for many, many hours um, over every detail of my theology. That's an intimidating thing, right? Like to stand up at front and be grilled. And, and my guess is that's what they had in mind. They wanted to hear what he had to say and then respond. But what we're told in the text is that they, when Jesus spoke, that they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority that was not like the scribes. Now, who were the scribes? Of course, the scribes were the most learned men. They were the ones who transcribed the law. They were the ones who knew the details. There was a sort of legal question concerning what was in the Torah. They were the ones you would go to. They were the ones who had probably some scribes on the leaderboard of the synagogue that would oversee the, 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 the teaching of uh, the synagogue; they were the authorities in many ways for that local synagogue. And yet, here it says that when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one who had authority. He spoke as one who knew his mind. That was he knew his mind in such a way that he knew and understood the mind of God. We we talked earlier uh, in our Sunday school class about the two natures of Christ. We we're talking about that. Uh, does Jesus have One will or two? There's a test. It's two. It's a human will and a divine will. Right? Uh, We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can go look at that. But for now, just just think about this idea that that he spoke, though, as one who knew his mind, which was the mind of God himself, who spoke the truth in such a way that it came across as not just the word of the Lord, But his word It's radical. They were astonished. They were flabbergasted at this man who taught with authority that could only be granted from heaven itself. So it was in this context of this uh, exercise of divine authority that Jesus is now confronted. But not by the teachers of the law. That was what it was expected. In fact, later, in, uh, or in the other Gospels, uh, later he'll go to Nazareth, his hometown, and he'll speak with authority in the synagogue, and he will be confronted by the, the the people in the synagogue, and they will take him out of town and take him to a cliff and get ready to throw him off the cliff. But here, he's not confronted by the authorities. Who is he confronted by? He is confronted by the one who from the beginning has been trying to take and wrest authority and power and control away from him. He is confronted by the evil one through a demon who has possessed a poor man. We see this. This man comes in possessed by an unclean spirit. He came into the synagogue and he confronted Jesus. Now, that's a really significant point in this because I think sometimes Jesus will confront a demon, right? He'll come to somebody who is demon possessed and cast out that demon. He makes a confrontation with the demon. But here, the demon comes to him. Did you notice that? He comes into the synagogue with the express purpose of challenging the authority and the power of Jesus, it was a battle. Now, we don't know much about this demon-possessed man. Maybe he was well-known by the townsfolk. Maybe this was a recent occurrence. We aren't told. We don't know. But we get a sense of the helplessness of the people to address the issue here and elsewhere in Scripture. You'll remember later in the Gospel of Mark, maybe, if you remember this, there was a crowd of people, including the disciples and... The Pharisees and they were crowded around a man and his son, and this demon was possessing the son, and the son was being cast into flames by the father, by the demon, and the father was at his wits' end, and nobody could cast out the demon. There's a sense of helplessness. You get a little bit of that here. um, Once they, you see it in verse 27, where they said, And they were all amazed. And they question among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. Meaning, we don't have that power. So here's this man possessed by this unclean spirit. And this is a hard thing for us to imagine. Because the concept of a demon or an unclean spirit unclean spirit possessing somebody is fairly foreign. Um, I, I'm not saying it doesn't happen ever. It, it does, and we have records and accounts of people uh, who have either been possessed or have witnessed it over the course of history, but it's a, it's, a, it's a rare occurrence, to say the least, right? And I think it was a fairly rare occurrence here except for this moment. Think back to the Old Testament. There are a few moments where it seems that evil has possessed somebody. You can think of Nebuchadnezzar as made a wild beast, but that's the Lord who did that to him. Uh, there's a witch. Um, there's various situations. But overall, demon possession is not a common occurrence. But here at the time of Jesus, there seems to be rampant demon possession. He goes around, the disciples go around Casting out demons. Jesus goes around casting out demons. Here we're faced with this demon. Why? Why all of the sudden is there this sort of ramp up of demon possession? Because they have an ultimate goal, don't they? The evil one has a goal. Goal is to <laughs> thwart Jesus in any way possible. To wrest power and control and authority from him, ultimately to destroy Jesus. That's the goal. So I think when these, uh, <clears throat> uh, this demon-possessed man comes in, it is Satan attempting to show that he is the one who has power, that he is the one who has authority. And he challenges Christ and his authority. He is saying to Jesus, look what I can do. I control people. Look what I can do. I can get an entire city to cry out, crucify. The evil one wants the destruction of Jesus. So here in this synagogue, these powerful minions of the evil one confront him. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, it's interesting. Uh, on the one hand, we can read this text as fear, right? But I think it's a confrontation. It's an opportunity for, for Satan to flex his muscles. It's an opportunity for them, that is the evil one in his minion, to call out Jesus, to mock him, to challenge him. <clears throat> they know who he is. They know better than the Galileans who he is. He's the Holy One of God. And their entire aim is to overcome it and destroy it. So this demon comes to challenge the authority of Jesus. One commentator noted that the structure of the demonic address is a common challenge formula found throughout the Old Testament. Follows a regular pattern. It was a bold, rebellious enemy of the king who thinks he can somehow gain the upper hand. But here's the reality, right? The movies are full of extras. What's an extra? A disposable character, right? You can do away with him. The movies are full of extras, who go after the big, powerful warrior, whatever movie it is, and who think they can somehow, in their own hubris and in their own ignorance, they can go and defeat the enemy champion, whoever that is, whatever it is, usually some terrible creature or beast. But it takes, you know, there's, they go up and they get destroyed because they're extras. So it is with this demon. In fact... Here, he names Jesus. He calls him the Holy One of God. And it was an attempt to reduce Jesus. It was an attempt to to be like, come on, I dare you. I'm not afraid of your name. I'm not afraid of who you are. Because in some way, putting a label on something makes it lesser, right? Is it Harry Potter fans in here? Anybody read Harry Potter? Few, few of you. Right? So Voldemort, you don't say his name, right? The one who shouldn't be named. But what do do those who want to confront Voldemort do? They say, say his name. Take away his power. Somehow he'll become lesser. And so it is here with the demon. They they get emboldened by saying the name as if if they have something over Jesus. Of course, it's utter foolishness on the part of the demon. You see, Jesus' name is above everything. Jesus' name is above every name. In naming him, you do not diminish him, but rather you reveal his true power, his true nature, his true authority. And how does Jesus respond? With a word. No incantations, no special actions, no physical battle. He simply rebukes. The demon. You have no power. Get out of here. Stop talking. You don't know who I am, because if you did, you would have never come here in the first place. Be silent. Come out of him. Friends, there's only one king who has all of power and authority. And the people in that synagogue were amazed. The word is amazed here. It's probably a better word to say they were terrified. By better translation. They were terrified. Here was a man who came into the synagogue, who spoke as one who had authority from heaven, who spoke as if God were speaking himself, because he was. Here was one who, by the very power of his word, cast out a demon and silenced him. There is only one king who has all power and authority. And they debated among themselves about it. What is this new teaching with authority that even unclean spirits obey? Friends, I think in our our rebellion against God and against Christ, we often diminish him. We try to. Maybe you don't actively do that. Maybe you're not one who says, oh, uh, you know, Jesus, I don't believe that you're the son of God and try to mock him in those ways, in those sort of overt ways. But I think in many of the ways that we, we live our lives and speak, we act as if Christ is not who he says he is. Here he comes with power and says, I am the king of kings, and I'm establishing my kingdom. I have all authority. But there's more to this, right? This isn't just Jesus establishing his power and authority and speaking with authority. But he comes not just to speak as the king, but he comes to speak as the king who is full of compassion and tenderness and care. Immediately following this event with the synagogue, the news of Jesus spreads. Jesus' fame goes out, and it's like wildfire. He went viral before YouTube, right? There was nothing to make there's no like uh, way to push a button and have his image across a million screens. He simply went out by person to person to person, across the whole region. He became famous. And by the end of this scene that we're going to see here, all the people are flooding to him with demon possession and with sickness and longing for Jesus to come and show his power and his wonder and his authority. But in the midst of this, as Jesus' ministry was ramping up, maybe, maybe the disciples were starting to think, now is the time to make a plan to build an infrastructure for this ministry that can catch that fame and spread the message, and we can go across Galilee and maybe down to Judea, and then we can cross over and, and go to the other side of the Jordan. We can, we can spread out the, over this entire area. This is the time that we need to be thinking about structure and planning and organization. And what does Jesus do? He goes to Peter's mother in law. He goes to her house. Jesus wasn't concerned with fame. Of course, he wasn't. Of course, Jesus wasn't concerned with fame. He left the realms of glory. He didn't need fame, he had all of it. But he left those realms and entered the wilderness. He took on flesh. He humbled himself. He wasn't concerned with the fame. So what does he do? He goes to the house of the suffering woman. He was concerned not with numbers, not with groupies. He was concerned with people. He had a deep compassion for those who suffered and for those who were lost. For those who are weary, for those who are sick, for those who are oppressed. And we get this intimate picture of love and compassion. Jesus goes to Peter's mother in law who had a fever. Maybe Peter had said something to Jesus. I just wanted to let you know. Maybe you could pray for my, my mother in law. She's sick. I don't know. Maybe Peter's wife came running to the synagogue and said, Peter, you've got to come home. My mom is sick. Maybe Jesus just knew. We aren't told. But Jesus goes to her bedside, puts his hand in her hand, intimately reaching down and touching her, showing love and care. Just as Jesus would cry with Mary over the death of Lazarus, Or all those times he would sit with the sick or with the dying, heal them, or whether he was eating and rejoicing with sinners or celebrating weddings, Jesus was cared about was Jesus cared about people. And he was intimate in their lives. The Lord of glory and King of Kings stooped to the bedside, never too busy, never too glorious. And in love he healed her and raised her up. And the response of the woman was maybe, I don't know what you think of it. It, Here it says, uh, uh, she began to serve them. I don't know. A cynic might say Jesus selfishly healed her to get a meal from this woman. I don't know. I think only a cynic would see this service of this woman as anything other than the overwhelming gratitude of one who has been touched and healed by the king. And ought that not be the response of all of us? When we've been touched by the king, when we've been healed, when we've been forgiven, when we know that all our sins have been Crucified with Christ on the cross, ought not we to know and rejoice and give thanks and respond in loving service to the King? Isn't that the the natural response? Thankful service. What other response can there be when the King of glory comes and restores and redeems our hearts? Can't help but be filled with gratitude. And this faithful disciple, this woman, did what she knew how to do best, to serve. Right? As the mother of the house, it's likely part of her role to serve. And they meant for a modern, that might come across as negative. That might come across as something that is uncomfortable for us. But for her, it was a response of love and gratitude. And then Jesus turns to the crowds. The crowds come. They come in droves. The fame of Jesus spread and the crowds come to the door of uh, presumably of Peter's house here. And there are hosts of people with whom he comes alongside of and cares for in the midst of whatever suffering and trial they have. They are sick. They lay ill. They have demon possession. Whatever it is, At sundown they they came and he sat with them and he healed many who were sick and he cast out many demons. And then there's this curious little line. It says, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So I didn't mention this before with the previous demon, but there is something here that Jesus is holding back. He's holding it back because later on when Jesus His time to go to the cross comes. He will reveal it more fully. He will say, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must die at the hands of uh, the authorities. He'll say that later in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. But here now he's saying, I am the one who is in charge. I have authority. And you are not the one to reveal me. I am the one to reveal myself. And so he shuts up these demons. But the emphasis of this little text is on the care that Jesus has for the physical needs and concerns of the people. Just earlier, we were talking about how Jesus is not uh, only God or kind of presenting himself as man, but not fully man, but that he is incarnate. Uh, He is uh, the God who came and took on flesh. Why? Why? Because we're flesh, people. Because we're not just disembodied souls, but we have physical problems that reflect the fall, right? Every illness, every sin, every uh, pain that we feel in this life is an effect of the fall. And when Jesus came alongside those physically hurting people, he was saying, I care about you, not just Your soul, but I care about your whole being, body, and soul. And I want to show you that my kingdom is coming, and there is a time coming when there will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pain and sickness and death. Because I have come. I have come to redeem humanity. And so, Jesus cares for sick and hurting people but that isn't all of it right it's not just about meeting their physical needs this brings me to my final and conclusion the compassionate powerful king declares the good news it says rising early he went while it was still dark out into the desolate place this should be uh, an interesting point here because the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he spent a lot of time in the desolate place. John was preaching in the desolate place. He was baptized in the desolate place. He went off into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan in the desolate place. And now he goes into a desolate place in the area of Galilee. And What does he do? He prays. He prays. Why? Well, Jesus had all the power and all the authority and all the glory. And he knew that in some sense he had the right to heal everybody. He could go around the entire countryside healing every single person of every ill. He could march into Jerusalem and wrest authority away from all uh, those who uh, were in opposition to him. He could push out Rome. He could do it all. But that was not his mission. He went into the desolate place. A place where he's reminded of his frailness and humanity. Of his calling. Of his mission. To do the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? The one who had given him and conferred on him authority and power? The will of the Father was that he would go to the cross and die. Receive the judgment that we deserve. And his mission was to go and proclaim that good news. That was his mission. And so all those hordes of people that were coming to him, that was a temptation for him to take and wrest authority from God himself and to say, I want to do it my way. And he said, no, I'm going to follow the way of the cross. I'm going to put myself in the shoes of the the broken and the hurting And I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And I'm going to proclaim that good news, the cross of Jesus Christ, to a world that needs to know their sins are forgiven. The physical body is part of us. But the most important thing that Jesus wanted to communicate was the good news of salvation, the redeeming work of the cross. As we close, as we think about this, I just want to ask a, a really basic question, which is, how do we view Jesus? How do we view him? Do we see him as the one who can fix all of our ills, our physical ailments, as the primary issue? If, if, if you just give me money, if you just give me a good job, if you just fix my illness, whatever that is, if you just heal my relationships on earth, if you do all those things, I'll see your power and I'll believe. Everything will be good. Jesus says that's, that's not the primary thing. That's not the fundamental thing. How do you see Jesus? You see, Jesus is the one who comes into our lives as the compassionate Lord of heaven and earth who reaches down and says, I will be intimate with you in such a way that I will identify with you in your suffering and I will die for you. And I will save you from your sin. How do you see Jesus? May it be our... our, vision of jesus would be expanded to the place where we see him as the lord of glory the one who has all authority and power but who comes with compassion to lay his life down for us and die for us let's pray heavenly